So um, let's move on to Dr. Benson. Uh, she is a professor of medicine at UCSD, and you've already met her. Um, she's going to talk to us about new drugs, what's on the horizon, and you may ask the question, why do we need to hear about new drugs, or why do we need them at all? Things are working pretty well, but you'll hear from her about what's on the horizon. There's some pretty exciting stuff. So, Dr. Benson. Great. So, thank you, Mike. All right. So, um, thank you all for Again, your attention today, and as Mike said, I'm going to be talking about new and investigational antiretroviral drugs. And these are my financial relationships and the learning objectives for today, and you can read all of these at your leisure in your syllabus, so I'm not going to belabor those points. So let's move right in. As Mike said, the first question I'm going to address is, is there really a need for new antiretroviral drugs? And then I'm going to cover new ARBs in development or recently approved. And they're going to be in three particular classes. The NRTTIs is Latravir representing that uh, class of drugs. Um, the second, Lenacapavir, and as you know, that's been approved for treatment of multidrug-resistant HIV, and then broadly neutralizing antibodies. And Let's move right into that first question. Do we really need new antiretroviral drugs? As Mike said, things have been going pretty well, and we've had really unprecedented progress in treating HIV in the past three decades. But I believe there are still opportunities for improvement. We continue to move in the direction of lower pill burden or drug burden in the clinical trials that we've been doing and in clinical practice. And there's been uh, an enormous amount of attention paid now to long-acting injectable drugs or long-acting oral drugs, particularly for individuals with adherence challenges. Many of our patients continue ha to have difficulties with adverse events associated with some of the drugs that we use in clinical practice, despite their being very well tolerated. And unfortunately, virological failure continues to occur to some degree, although not the way we saw it in past years. And this may be due to drug resistance, adverse effects, poor adherence, and all of the things you already know about. So I think there is a need for new antiretroviral drugs. Um, this is a partially complete slide listing different categories of antiretroviral drugs in development or recently approved. But as you can see, in past years when we would do these talks, these tables would be full of new drugs. What you can see now is there a relative paucity of new drugs in development, and many of these on this slide have already fallen off the development track. So the ones highlighted in yellow will be the ones we talk about today. So I'm going to move right into talking about Islatravir and what's happened with that drug. Islatravir, for those of you who recall, is a reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor, a little bit different than the NNRTI or NRTI class, but it does result in chain termination similar to other NRTIs. It's active at submolar concentration, sub-nanomolar concentration, so very potent drug, and a very long plasma half-life, particularly for the active triphosphate intracellular uh, metabolite of that drug, with a half-life up to 128 hours. It had been evaluated in both an oral and a parenteral formulation, 
in, and for both prevention and treatment, but was put on clinical hold by the FDA last year. And I'm going to just review briefly sort of the, where we are with this latrivir. Uh, at the EACS conference in 2021, the phase 2b study, which was a complex study, but I'll just summarize it briefly by saying a dose-ranging study, um, presented data on the week 144 efficacy. And there were three different doses of Islatravir in combination with Durabarine that were studied in that trial and compared with a standard of care arm of Durabarine 3TC and previous formulation of tenofovir. And just to highlight the results, combining all the different Islatravir doses, they were roughly comparable in activity to the control arm of Durabarine, 3TC, and tenofovir, with uh, seven patients who had protocol-defined virologic failure in that arm. Shortly following um, the presentation of those data, Islatravir was put on clinical hold. This table represents um, all of the different clinical trials that were in progress at the time that clinical hold began. And it was due to the fact that observations were seen in each of these clinical trials suggesting that Islatravir was associated with a decrease in total lymphocyte count and CD4 lymphocyte count. And therefore, further investigation of that was necessary. All of these studies were stopped at that point, with the exception of the two large phase three clinical trials that were being done as switch studies in people who were virologically suppressed. And those three studies continued despite the stopping of all the other clinical trials. So this year at CROI, the results of those two phase three trials were presented. And the first of these was an open-label phase three clinical trial of Duravarine and Islatravir. And the Islatravir dose used here was 0.75 milligrams per day. And this was studied in adults who were virologically suppressed on an antiretroviral therapy for at least three months before entry, had to have a screening HIV RNA of less than 50 copies and no prior history of treatment failure. And they were stratified at randomization by their baseline antiretroviral therapy regimen and then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to open label Duravarine plus Islatravir or continuation of their baseline antiretroviral therapy regimen. The week 48 data were the primary endpoint, and those were presented at CROI this year. And not to belabor the point, but you can see the two bars here are exactly the same. About 95% of individuals fully suppressed with less than 50 copies at the week 48 time point. So switching to Duravarine was non-inferior to continuation of the baseline ART regimen and there were no participants in the Durabarine Islatravir arm that had virologic failure. Three patients had virologic failure due to resistance at baseline in their um, entry regimens. So interestingly, although you won't be, you mostly will be able to see just the colored bars here, but also presented were the results of the CD4 cell count and the total lymphocyte count in this study. And um, what you, Mo probably can't appreciate fully from the colored bars here. There was a difference in CD4 lymphocyte count at the end of that 48-week endpoint, with the individuals on the Islatravir arm having an average of 66 
fewer CD4s, uh, uh, minus 66 cells difference in that arm compared to the standard of care arm. And the same with total lymphocyte count, about a 7% reduction in total lymphocyte count in the individuals on the Islatravir arm. The second switch study that was presented at CROI was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial in individuals who were fully suppressed on, for at least three months on a Bictegravir FTC TAF regimen, and they were randomized to one-to-one -to, -one to go on to Duravirine Islatravir, same dose, plus placebo, or stay on Bictegravir um, FTAF and placebo for the Duravirine Islatravir component. Again, a week 48 endpoint was evaluated. The study design is meant to continue on to week 144, and at the point where patients reach the week 96 endpoint, they will continue to be followed in an open label fashion without the placebo component. So the primary endpoint at week 48 was presented at CROI. And again, the bars were exactly the same. Non-inferiority non demonstrated between Duravirine and Islatravir compared to Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF. And there was no resistance uh, detected in the one participant who was on Duravirine and Islatravir and had virological failure. And the PK data indicated that no Islatravir was present in the plasma. So I think this was an adherence-associated virologic failure. And likewise, although I'm not going to show you the graph, CD4 lymphocyte counts were lower at week 48 in the Islatravir arm, as were the total lymphocyte counts. But these were, bo in both of these phase three, phase three trials, that reduction in CD4 lymphocyte count compared to standard of care was felt to be not clinically significant. So just key points from these phase three trials, the baseline demographics, viral and CD4 count characteristics in both of these trials, one open label and one double blind, were similar. Duravirine Islatravir was generally well tolerated. About one and a half to two percent of individuals discontinue, discontinued the Islatravir component due to drug-related adverse events, but there were a few serious adverse events in either arm, and the safety profiles were similar uh, across all of the arms. And as I said, the decreases in CD4 cell count and total lymphocyte count were felt to be not clinically significant. So what's been done to look at the mechanism for these decreases in CD4 and total lymphocyte count? Merck has undertaken an exhaustive evaluation, and this was presented at CROI this year, and all of the phase two and phase three is Latravir clinical trials, which represented exposure of about 1,400 people with HIV and about 884 people with, who were on as Latravir in the prevention trials. And the mechanism for the reduction in lymphocytes was identified as related to the fact that the Islatravir triphosphate component preferentially accumulates in lymphocytes and leads to supratherapeutic concentrations because of the long half-life of the triphosphate component. This led to apoptosis of lymphocytes, and that in turn was responsible for the decrease in total NCD4 lymphocyte counts. There was no measurable evidence of mitochondrial toxicity, 
And the graphic um, pictures here just show that in all of the seven clinical trials that were underway at the time this uh, clinical hold was started, all had this similar decrease in CD4 lymphocyte and T lymphocyte counts in both prevention, regardless of what um, interval that preventive therapy was given, and in the phase three treatment trials. There did appear to be a dose-response relationship. So the higher the dose of islatrovir used, the higher the or the lower the CD4 and T lymphocyte count reduction. And again, these were slides taken from the CROI presentation. And what you may be able to appreciate, despite the uh, faint coloration on these slides, is that in the analysis of the phase three clinical trials switch studies, what was observed as patients were continued on those phase three studies beyond the week 48 endpoint is that the reduction in CD4 lymphocyte counts and total T cell counts were truncated around the week 48 endpoint. And they stabilized and did not reduce further after week 48 to week 72. And in the, the phase 2b study that I showed you that was presented two years ago, they were able to establish a dose-response relationship with the lowest dose of islatrovir looking more like the standard of care arm in terms of CD4 and T lymphocyte counts. So the conclusions based on Merck's analysis of all of the patients in these randomized clinical trials was that there was a dose-dependent decrease from baseline as I've outlined, in those decreases were higher as the islatrovir dose was increased. The percent changes returned to level, levels similar to controls after the islatrovir was stopped. And in the three studies, or in the two phase three studies, the decreases stabilized between week 48 and 72. Looking at further clinical and modeling data, they were able to establish a triphosphate um, metabolite threshold and a clinical dose below which they do not expect to see total lymphocyte or CD4 T cell count reductions. And phase three clinical development has now resumed for islatrovir at a dose of 0.25 milligrams of the islatrovir in combination with duravirine. So let's move on to lenacapavir. As you know, lenacapavir is a novel first-in-class capsid inhibitor. It modulates the stability or transport of the capsid complexes and has an effect at multiple processes necessary for viral replication. Um, Rafi Landovitz will also show you this slide, but it, uh, I get to do it first, so he can gloss over it. Um, the data from the lenacapavir trials that have been presented to date, I'm just gonna briefly review for you. The Calibrate study was one of lenacapavir done in treatment-naive people with HIV who had uh, greater than 200 copies of HIV RNA and a CD4 count of at least 200 cells per microliter. And there were four different treatment groups in the Calibrate study. The week 54 data were presented at CROI last year, but have been updated at CROI this year. The three treatment groups, um, were all lenacapavir given either subcutaneously every six months or an oral dose of lenacapavir, all in combination initially with FTAF. And then the control arm was Bictegravir FTAF. 
At week 28, in two of the arms, the sub-Q lenacapavir F-TAF combination was decreased to just lenacapavir and TAF alone, given orally, and lenacapavir in the second one was decreased to eliminate F-TAF and continue with bictegravir plus lenacapavir. So a slightly complicated uh, study design, but you can see the, the summary results here that combining the two lenacapavir subcutaneous groups, 88% of individuals had, main, had achieved and maintained virologic suppression at the week 54 endpoint. The reason it's week 54 is because of that 14-day lead-in phase with oral lenacapavir. Two patients developed lenacapavir resistance in the study, and the resistance mutations are listed on the slide here. Both of those individuals resuppressed on a new regimen with an uh, integrase inhibitor. And only three patients developed treatment-limiting injection site reactions is the major complication. This is the update at week 80 presented at CROI this year, and the top part of the slide on the left-hand side shows you the proportion of individuals who achieved and maintained virologic suppression through week 80. And you can see that for the majority of the individuals in the study, they had high rates of viral suppression through week 80. And lenacapavir was well-tolerated, discontinuations due to adverse events, were uh, very infrequent. BMI and weight gain was modest in the lenacapavir arms and similar to that in the bictegravir arm across all treatment groups. And there were three patients who developed uh, lenacapavir uh, treatment emergent resistance mutations in the study. So the other study that led to the approval of lenacapavir for people with drug-resistant HIV was the Capella study. This too was presented last year at CROI, but in case you missed it, um, this was a study in which individuals who had um, detectable HIV RNA and resistance to at least two drugs among two, at least two classes of drugs were randomized to um, two different groups, and in the, they both underwent um, second screening phase. At the second screening phase, if the pre-randomization HIV RNA had become suppressed during those two screening visits, then they went into a non-randomized cohort where they received open-label lenacapavir, and if they were still, um, had detectable HIV RNA, they went on to the randomized component of the study. And individuals in this study had a 14-day um, functional monotherapy component in which they received either oral lenacapavir or placebo and continued their failing ART regimen. And after that 14-day monotherapy, they went on to receive subcutaneous lenacapavir and optimization of their background treatment. The placebo group went through an oral lenacapavir um, phase of treatment and then went on to subcutaneous lenacapavir with optimized background therapy. And then the open label control group did the same. So the week 52 data from the Compella trial was also updated at CROI, and you can see that there was a pretty high rate for these individuals with drug-resistant HIV of virologic suppression at the week 52 endpoint. 
comparable levels across the board. The efficacy of lenacapavir in combination with optimized background therapy was also shown to be consistent across different um, demographics at baseline, different baseline characteristics, and in the presence of fully active agents in the background treatment, meaning that they had the same efficacy regardless of whether there were zero, one, or two active agents in their optimized background therapy. So this is the trial that led to approval of lenacapavir for this component of people with HIV. The treatment-naive trials are continuing despite a short blip of clinical hold for lenacapavir as well, and uh, we'll see more data from those studies as we move forward. The last treatment group I'm going to talk about are broadly neutralizing antibodies. These are drugs that have been around for a very long time. They've been used in a number of different clinical settings, and there are multiple of these that have been studied, including ones that bind at the CD4 binding site, the V1, V2 binding site, the um, V3 glycan patch binding site, the GP120, GP41 interface, and at the viral membrane. So multiple different monoclonal antibodies in development, all many of which bind at very different binding sites in HIV. They are generally have been shown to be safe. They all have long half-lives, antiviral activity that suppresses viremia, their Achilles heel is that with monotherapy and even in combination, they appear to rapidly select for resistance in some formulations. They appear to have immune activity boosting um, characteristics and they have been used for their potential to directly eliminate infected cells and reduce the reservoir. I'm only going to be talking about these in the context of treatment of HIV, not cure reservoir effects or prevention, but they are under evaluation for all three of those activities. So just in summary, the effect of broadly neutralizing antibodies on plasma viremia have shown that um, across all of the studies that have been done, as summarized on this slide, there is a rapid reduction in viremia that ranges from 1.5 to 2 log with a single monotherapy with a, a broadly neutralizing antibody. However, viral resistance rapidly occurs when used as monotherapy and results in a fairly rapid rebound of viremia when given alone. Viral suppression is generally better when you start with people who have low viral loads to begin with. Combining broadly neutralizing antibodies in two or three BNAB combinations results in greater viral suppression and more prolonged time before individuals have a rise in or a rebound in viremia again. There have been a number of steps undertaken to bioengineer broadly neutralizing antibodies, both to increase their potency and to increase their bioavailability. And this is a, a slide that provides examples of these, taking, for example, the BRCO1 um, bioengineered um, BNAB had a half-life that went from 7, 15 days to 71 days. And likewise, with other ones that have been bioengineered, the half-life of the LS variants of the BNABs are on average about threefold longer than their parental broadly neutralizing antibodies. And this allows for twice yearly or 
uh, intravenous infusions or sub quarterly subcutaneous administration of the broadly neutralizing antibodies. And then trying to take these into the clinic in clinical trials of people with HIV, one of the first of the studies that was reported at um, the Glasgow conference this last fall looked at a novel BNAB with in vitro activity that targets the CD4 binding site and in a multi-center, open-label, single-dose uh, study design, individuals who were treatment-naive had HIV RNA levels greater than 5,000 and CD4 counts greater than 250, went, received a single infusion of either a low dose of the BNAB or a high dose. The high dose was a 40 milligram per kilogram dose given by intravenous infusion and the low dose about four milligrams per kilogram given by intravenous infusion. Patients were then followed after 11 to 84 days to look at the timing of viral rebound and then were treated with dolutegravir and 3TC. And the results of the Banner trial are shown here. Baseline demographics and characteristics were similar across the treatment arms. Um, participants, all part, 13 of the 14 participants experienced a virologic response with at least uh, uh, a nadir of greater than or less than point, a nadir below five log, 0.5 logs decreased from baseline. And there were 35 adverse events reported, but none of these were above, were three, grade three or above. There were no serious AEs. And what you can see kind of highlighted in the red there is the uh, mean, the maximum viral nadir for each of the two arms with about a 2.6 log reduction from baseline in the high dose BNAB arm and about 2.1, 2.2 log reduction in the low dose BNAB arm. And the duration of viral suppression before rebound was longer in the high-dose arm of 35 days and 18 days for the lower-dose arm. The next BNAB study that was of interest to all of us was also presented at CROI this year by Joe Aaron, and this was looking interestingly at two BNABs in combination with lenacapavir given every six months. The study design, again, was a study design in which, this time not treatment naive, but virologically suppressed individuals who had been suppressed for at least 18 months and had a CD4 count above 500, so a very um, relatively healthy group. They, were they received um, one of two different doses of one of the BNABs, and I'm going to refer to these as TAB and ZAB, so I don't uh, screw up the pronunciation of the BNABs, but the uh, same TAB dose, the same lenacapavir dose was used in both groups, but the ZAB BNAB had both a low dose and a high dose administered. Patients received uh, two oral doses on day one and day two of lenacapavir as kind of a loading dose, and then two subcutaneous subcutaneous lenacapavir doses, and then one single infusion of the two BNABs. And the primary endpoint was evaluated at week 26. The study was designed to have a second dose at week 26, but at that point, lenacapavir had been on clinical hold because of the interaction of the drug with the vials in which they were uh, being stored. And until they 
went back until it was approved to move back into development, um, the study design was truncated at week six and patients were put back on antiretroviral therapy. And this just summarizes the results that we're seeing. That is exactly the same result in, across both arms. 90% of individuals remained fully suppressed at week 26. And after a single dose of each of the monoclonal antibodies and the single um, entry dose of lenacapavir. One patient had viral rebound at week 16. There were no adverse events that led to study discontinuation and no clinically relevant treatment emergent laboratory abnormalities were seen. So I think this has promise, but I, I'm not sure that it's a convincing study that tells us this is an ongoing approach for treatment yet, but we're getting there. I think the most important piece of information from the study is the pharmacokinetic data and looking at therapeutic concentrations of both monoclonal antibodies at week 26, they were well above the inhibitory concentration for the virus at that point, and as was the lenacapavir. So this suggests that this long-acting regimen given once every six months may uh, indeed maintain virologic suppression for individuals. The last few snippets of new drug data that were presented at CROI this year, um, again, going back to the Islatravir dosing, there was also a modeling study that suggested a dose of two milligrams of Islatravir given once a week would rapidly achieve effective exposures to that for that drug and virologically suppressed people with HIV without changes in CD4 or total T lymphocyte counts. A second uh, poster presentation on viral sensitivity to the um, broadly neutralizing antibody tested in the Banner study suggested that both baseline sensitivity and CD4 cell count correlated with the magnitude and durability of the antiviral response. And then the last kind of promising snippet was the uh, posters presenting data on the conversion of Bictegravir into an ultra-long-acting prodrug nanoformulation and showing that this has the potential for an every six-month parenteral dosing regimen. So in conclusion, I think I've addressed the fact there's an ongoing need for new antiretroviral drugs, but perhaps less urgent than in the past. The pipeline is not really very robust, but continues. The greatest efforts have been in the area of long-acting injectable drugs with a few hiccups along the way, and the complexities of implementation are well under, under uh, way in terms of being addressed. But there's still, to my mind, an uncertain clinical path for broadly neutralizing antibodies, either alone or in combination with other drugs. So I'll end there, and thank you for your attention. Fantastic, thank you, Connie. Um, first off, we didn't talk about this, but thank you for uh, your masking. Uh, nobody knows what to do now. It, the, the epidemic officially Washington Post just announces the emergency is over, right? But we know that these new variants are coming around and the uh, V116 is very infectious and it's hitting and it hit Paul Volberding. So there's, there's hints that this is still around us good news is um, with uh, vaccines and use of Paxlovid, I think 
people are not dying in the same way, but there's still about 200 deaths a day. So we just thought as we come back together, we would ask everyone to use their masks. So thank you for that. Um, lots of really good questions that have already come in either on Slido or cards. I'll just start. Why pair Duravarine with Zlatravir? <laughs> <laughs> you all know the answer to that question. <laughs> It's made by Merck. Made but, by Merck. Yeah, okay. But it's a good question. It I is mean, a good, it's a good question. Obviously, to, the pharmacokinetic and, and, properties. And in, in fairness to Merck and all the other companies, when, when you do a partnership with another drug company, you're, you're going through legal channels, you've got a lot of production issues, it's a whole lot easier to do it in-house. And it's not, I mean, biologically, it's sound. Um, did investigators look at changes in weight with the Zlatravir, uh, like the Zlatravir Duravarine? Um, not in the data that were presented at CROI. I think there were a lot of questions about those phase three trials. They didn't present any resistance data, for example, from the week 144 trial that was presented almost two years ago. And uh, that led to a little contentious discussion at the microphone at CROI. And uh, they also um, didn't really present much in the way of um, other complications associated with longer-term use of the drugs. So, okay. in all fairness, though, it's really only a week 48 right. um, results that were presented. So, I think we'll see a lot more information from those studies. Um, should we be concerned with lenacapavir resistance? Yeah, and I think the results that I showed you from both the treatment naive and the drug-resistant uh, group of of studies, they're a very small number, but people who did develop treatment emergent um, resistance mutations. And when you have someone getting an every six month regimen parenterally, that's of some concern. Uh, I think the fact that we have a whole host of other, op other drugs that can be used and the fact that all of the patients you know, the, the three in each of the studies that developed resistance mutations were rapidly suppressed on, on subsequent regimens um, is of some comfort. But I think this story will have to play out as we see the drug being used in clinical practice more. I, I know in our setting it's become the patients that have been started on parenteral therapy, either with cabotegravir, rilpivirine, or with lenacapavir, it's been a very popular regimen. So I think we'll see more of this and how the resistance issues play out as time moves on. Yeah, so this is a question about TAB and ZAB, which I understand is being developed by Coca-Cola company. <laughs> The next study is going to be called Fresca. Um, should we be concerned about TAB-ZAB resistance for patients participating in these studies? Well, so I think I told, as I mentioned during the talk, the, the Achilles heel of the broadly neutralizing antibodies is um, resistance. And there actually has, in several of these studies, pre-existing resistance has been demonstrated in the trials. and so. I think as it moves forward, as they move forward in development, if they do for treatment, you're going to have to do baseline resistance testing to make sure that individuals are susceptible to the neutralizing antibodies that you're using. The fact that 
even um, in combination with three or more neutralizing antibodies, you still see resistance. I think, as I said, I think there's concern that this about this as an approach. I think the combination with leaded capavir was an attempt to overcome some of the concerns about um, emergence of resistance with the broadly neutralizing antibodies. And again, that study is very early in its uh, development, so I think we'll have to see how this plays out. They may have more utility in uh, in prevention than in treatment, um, but I think right now it's too early to tell if resistance is going to be something that just completely eliminates their use in, in treatment regimens. Yeah, but uh, Connie, uh, yeah, right at the microphone. Yeah, come right up to the yeah, microphone. Yeah. Thank um, you. So it was interesting. I mean, I just didn't realize what, when I was at Croy, the one patient that failed on Joe Enron's study did not have escape mutations or lenacapravir uh, mutations either. So they failed so without what was anything. That? <laughs> what was that about, right? right. Yeah. I don't know. And you can't talk about it being an adherence challenge because right. so that gets, they got that, parenteral therapy. So what that tells me is maybe we're not yet able to account for all of the resistance mutations that might be occurring. We, maybe there's things that we can't yet test for or we don't see or may be occurring at a subclinical level. And then the other question, there's a question here that relates to that about are there BMI limitations with sub-Q linocapavir? I mean, could that have been a PK issue? Maybe not? Um, well, they didn't see it in the PK right. analysis, but, um, but you know, we've had that question about cabotegravir, too. Right. And but cabotegravir so, is going IM, so if, if right. you're not getting it's to different. the muscle with the right needle, that's an issue. But sub-Q But sub-Q, you shouldn't, shouldn't have that problem, right? right. right. And... Uh, so again, these are all very good questions, ones that I don't think we actually have answers yeah. to. So one question here about the lymphocyte depletion that occurs with especially the higher dose of Zlatravir, uh, how long does it take for that to recover when they stop? Well, if you look at the graphs that Merck presented at Croy, it looks like they, co they recovered at some point within about eight to 12 weeks. And, and the way I read it, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we tend to forget how CD4 counts are derived, right? So it's a, it's a total lymphocyte count times a percent CD4. So if the total lymphocyte count goes down, by definition, the, the CD4, CD4 count, count is going to go down. So I, I didn't really look at this carefully, but I assume that the CD4 percent stayed relatively constant, right? I, didn't I don't look remember, at that but it almost had either. to. Yeah. I think it's a lymphocyte toxicity yeah. issue. No, and, and clearly yeah. the mechanism of action exactly. is lymphocyte toxicity. Exactly. So it's going to affect all of the lymphocytes. Um, and then this question is Is Latrovir currently in use clinically that you know of? I mean, no. it's all clinical it's trials. It's all clinical trials. Okay. You'll hear a little bit more about that from uh, Dr. Landovitz in, in the uh, prevention segment. He'll be talking about. Maybe not so much as Latrovir, but an, a newer compound that Merck has under development. And I, we agreed that I wouldn't talk about that because he's going to talk about it. So. so thank you. Those are great questions, and it's really wonderful to be back in person. It's nice to have this kind of, I mean, I'm a little bit fatigued with Zoom, so it's, it's nice to be able to share this with you, even if we're wearing masks. So thanks. Great presentation, Connie. Thank, thank you. you very much.